the great fundamental issue now before our people can be taken place. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. shape the future in the image of our hopes is ours is to determine by our actions and our choices. If we succeed, generations to come will say of us now living that we mastered our moment. Bringing Heartland America into the heart of the swamp. This is The Right Take. Hello, everybody, and how's it going? Welcome to episode number 64 of The Right Take. I'm Eric Lendrum, and unfortunately, guys, my co-host Jacob Grandstaff is not here for this particular episode. Something came up, but I am happy to fill in and host this episode by myself for you guys. I have done it once before. Although, of course, I spent the majority of that episode basically just talking about myself and my political journey from being red-pilled in high school all the way up to where I am today. So I'm going to do the best I can to do a regular episode here with just myself. Uh, and for better or for worse, there wasn't too much else that happened in the news in terms of really big stories that would warrant our usual length of about an hour-long episode. There are still things I want to talk about, of course, and there are a few things I want to kind of preview, I guess, for next week's episode that, of course, when Jacob is back, we'll be able to talk about in depth. Of course, the breaking news that on Saturday there was a mass shooting in Buffalo, New York. Uh, Ten people dead, three others injured, and the perpetrator has been taken into custody alive. His name is Peyton uh, Gendron, Gendron, I'm not exactly sure how you pronounce that. And as you can imagine, of course, there's already a lot of spin about this and the bodies aren't even cold yet. 
because apparently this guy, this individual, did post a manifesto of sorts online. The moment I heard that, I just rolled my eyes. I'm like, okay, here we go. I do have some excerpts here that some friends sent to me who did read through the manifesto, and I want to read just a few here just to give you guys a general idea of these, these are the parts of the manifesto you're not going to be hearing about in the mainstream media. <clears throat> he wrote it as a series of questions that he answers himself. Are you a neo-Nazi? I support neo-Nazism, but I am not a member of any neo-Nazi groups. You decide what that makes me. All right. Are you right-wing? Depending on the definition, sure. Are you left-wing? Depending on the definition, sure. Again, all right. What are your views? I would prefer to call myself a populist, but you can call me an ethno-nationalist, eco-fascist, national socialist if you want. I wouldn't disagree with you. I, at this, It was at this point when I read this one that I kind of got the idea. This guy, if you put the political compass down in front of him and gave him like a pen or something and told him, hey, mark where you are on the political compass, his mind would change every couple of seconds. He'd start one dot here and then another dot here, and then he'd just kind of draw it back and forth across all four quadrants until it looks like a Roar's Ark blot by the end of it all. Th this guy, I'm going to say he dubs absolutely sounds schizophrenic to say the least uh this question was definitely interesting as well this kind of confirms the schizophrenia are you a fed slash shill slash Mossad agent slash false flag slash patsy slash imposter slash antifa slash three-letter agent glow so bright etc etc who no i don't think so who knows maybe it's the two shots of covid vaccine juice going through my bloodstream that's really making me do this it's healthy to have skepticism, of course, but don't let your skepticism turn you away from people who support you. God, this is absolutely unreal. This one might be the single most self-contradictory passage of the whole thing. Are you a Christian? No. I do not ask God for salvation by faith, nor do I confess my sins to him. I personally believe there is no afterlife. I do, however, believe in and practice many Christian values. So you might as well at that point say that you're a Christian who doesn't believe in Christ or that you're an atheist who believes there's a God. You can't believe Christian values and not think there's an afterlife slash heaven. That makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And one last one I had to read. This is definitely kind of the passage that a lot of people are going to point to to try to debunk the media's claims this guy was right wing by any means. Did you always hold these views? When I was 12, I was deep into communist ideology. Talk to anyone from my old high school and ask about me, and you will hear that. From age 15 to 18, however, I consistently moved farther to the right. On the political compass, I fall in the mild, moderate, authoritarian left category, and I would prefer to be called a populist. So like I said with the joke about the schizophrenic, you know, Rorzark blot drawing on a political compass, this guy is all over the place, obviously mentally unstable, and you can tell he wrote this manifesto trying to throw every single thing he can think of in there, including the kitchen sink and more, and many more other things in addition to kitchen sinks being thrown in there. But of course, the media spin has already begun on social media. You're already seeing it. This very much like the, the leaking of the Roe v. Wade decision, this is another example of how the left is obviously going to throw some kind of flashbang out to try to distract from everything else going on. On right now, just like they want to run on abortion to try to distract from the inflation that is crushing Americans' wallets with grocery prices and gas prices. Now they want to use this to try to talk about you know, white supremacist ideology slash gun control to distract from everything else going on. They're trying to distract from the real racial violence in America today, the racially violent ideologies, which is critical race theory slash black nationalism. They want to distract from the transgender agenda that wants to mutilate and rape kids. And they want to try to run on an issue that once again, I think like abortion, this is going to backfire because Gun control is an issue where they have always 
overestimated their support. They genuinely think most Americans support gun control. But like abortion, spoiler alert, most Americans support the Second Amendment and want those rights to be left alone. So good luck trying to run on this. And again, this is May, so come November, this is not going to be at the front of everybody's minds as they would like it to be. But you're already seeing it. And just one example I want to highlight here from a guy by the name of Joe Lockhart. And he apparently was press secretary towards the end of Bill Clinton's presidency. So I guess that's his big claim to fame. Quote, more blood on the hands of at Tucker Carlson and at Fox News. This killer used their racist talking points to justify killing 10 people. Carlson won't stop because, as he explained to the NY Times, it's good for ratings. Lives be damned, as Carlson will be at Judgment Day. Bom, bom, bom. Uh, so I know, I'm guarantee you, I'm willing to bet this guy is not religious in any way whatsoever. This is another one of those leftist atheists who probably just, you know, whips religion out of his pocket whenever he thinks it's, it's a good weapon to use against the right. And Donald Trump Jr., of course, very righteously uh, responded to that tweet saying, quote, the killer attacks Fox News in his manifesto. CNN is paying a guy. Oh, I guess this is a CNN contributor. CNN is paying a guy to lie and politicize the deaths of 10 people while their bodies are still warm. Uh, but that, of course, is and always has been the left in a nutshell. So there's a lot to break down here, of course. Again, apparently the manifesto was, uh, I think, 106 pages long. I haven't read the whole thing, of course. I've just seen these excerpts that my friend sent me. And again, I'm sure Jacob and I will be able to talk about this more in depth next week. Also, certainly because a week from now, much more information will ultimately come out about this incident. Certainly uh, his backstory and his history will become a little more obvious uh, closer to that point. So that's, I guess, consider that a bit of a preview. That is something we will talk about in the future because uh, it's better for us to talk about it when we are both here and able to kind of go back and forth on it. In other news, we have to recap, of course, the most recent elections. This is your election update here on The Right Take. We had the primaries in Nebraska and West Virginia on Tuesday. Not nearly as exciting or as competitive, I suppose, as, as Ohio the week prior, but still two, at least two very big primaries we had to talk about. And one, of course, is in West Virginia. West Virginia is one of the seven states in the country that lost a congressional seat and lost, lost one electoral vote due to the 2020 census, due to a decrease in their population. So previously, it had three districts in the House of Representatives. So districts two and three were combined into one, in ultimately resulting in the first of many incumbent versus incumbent battles that we're going to see this year. Two Republicans, because, of course, West Virginia is arguably the most Republican state in the country. Alex Mooney versus David McKinley. And the list of endorsements between these two guys just tells you all you need to know. Mooney was endorsed by President Trump. McKinley was endorsed by Governor Jim Justice, who is a Republican, although he was first elected as a Democrat before he famously switched to a Republican on stage with Trump at a rally. Senator Joe Manchin, who, of course, is a Democrat, a moderate Democrat, but a Democrat nonetheless, who tried to cite McKinley's bipartisanship. And the West Virginia Chamber of Commerce. That tells you all you really need to know. McKinley... If, likes to tout himself as a bipartisan member of Congress, which translation, he voted for Biden's disastrous infrastructure bill. He was one of the key votes that allowed it to pass. Again, it was just a small number of Republican votes. If every Republican had voted in lockstep, then you throw in the handful of squad members and radical progressive Democrats who voted against it, that bill would have died. So thanks, McKinley, for doing that. He also was one of only 35 Republican members of the House to vote in favor of creating a January 6th commission. So this guy was a rhino scumbag and he had to go. So it was a classic showdown of the state's leadership and the state party establishment versus Trump, and Trump emerged victorious. Mooney got 54% of the vote to McKinley's 36%. Sayonara, McKinley. We hardly knew you. Unfortunately, though, all good things must come to an end, and that includes Trump winning streaks. 
Now, we talked previously about how Trump's endorsement record is virtually spotless. There have only been a handful of endorsements he's made over the course of his entire political career from 2017 up to now, where his the people he endorsed lost their primaries. There, of course, have been many races in you know, competitive swing seats in states where he endorsed the Republican nominee who goes on to lose in our general election because, you know, sometimes that happens. But very rarely would his picks lose their primaries. That had only happened five times between 2017 and 2021. My previous math was actually off. I did a little uh, research on Ballotpedia, and it turns out there actually were a handful more that have lost their primaries at some point or another. But five primary endorsements that have lost out of 481 endorsements from 2017 up to the current day. So five losses out of 481 is definitely not a bad thing. But unfortunately, Nebraska brought him one more primary loss, bringing that total to six now. In the governor's race there, Trump endorsed a businessman by the name of Charles Herbster, who apparently supported Trump's candidacy from day one. He was actually allegedly at Trump Tower the day that Trump and his wife Melania came down the escalator to announce his campaign. He served as an agricultural advisor on President Trump's re-election campaign in 2020, and he did previously run for governor of Nebraska once before in 2014. So he was the initial frontrunner with Trump's endorsement, but then unfortunately, you would think this wouldn't be the case in the year 2022, but apparently it is. Me Too is still kind of a thing. It's still a tactic being used where women are brought out of nowhere and paid by shadowy figures behind the scenes to make up fake sexual harassment, sexual assault allegations against a political figure that said shadowy figures want to take down. So a couple of women came out and accused Charles Herbster of sexual misconduct. He denied everything, of course, rightfully so. And, of course, these women never presented any evidence because they never do. But, unfortunately, that was enough to scare the state party away from him. And outgoing Governor Pete Ricketts decided to endorse Jim Pillen, a farmer and former chair of the University of Nebraska Board of Regents. That is awfully a suspicious thing to have on your resume. And one other candidate who kind of came in late to the game was a state senator by the name of Brett Lindstrom whose districts include the big city of Omaha, who, kind of like Matt Dolan in the Ohio primary, tried to essentially carve out a little niche for himself as a soft anti-Trumper. So early in the night, when the first few results all came back from the big cities, he was initially way in the lead with Pillen in second and Herbster in a distant third. But of course, as the rest of the state, the sane areas of the state, the rural areas started to come back, they both closed the gap on Lindstrom, ultimately knocking him down to third place. And for a while there, it looked like Herbster might squeak out a narrow victory, but unfortunately he did not. And Pillen got the nomination with 34% to Herbster's 30%. So sorry, Mr. Herbster, you would have been a great governor, I'm sure, but uh, I guess this is a tactic that still exists to this day. You know, you would think that after Kavanaugh, and certainly with the ongoing uh, Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, you think Me Too would basically already be in the coffin and be lowered into the ground at this point. But unfortunately, it's still kicking and screaming. It's not giving up without a fight. So we still need to do everything we can to kill this evil movement that is Me Too and radical feminism. So uh, let it have this last gasp, I guess, before we finally eventually kill it in the very near future, which I do think will happen. And like I said, in the end, it doesn't really matter for either of these two states because both West Virginia and Nebraska are heavily red. So the primaries were more just a matter of selecting who the standard bearer would be going into the general election, where in both cases, in Alex Mooney's district and in the governor's race in Nebraska, the Republicans are the overwhelming favorite to win. So it's not like these seats are going to flip blue or anything, but the primaries were still pretty interesting to talk about nonetheless. 
And this is another preview, I guess, for next week's episode because we are definitely going to have some fun with this one. The next primary is coming up tomorrow. Oh, this is going to be fun. So tomorrow, we're going to have five primaries. Some not so exciting, but others very exciting. We've got Oregon and Kentucky, where nothing really crazy is going on there. We've got North Carolina, where uh, you have a Senate race that will be uh, very important in terms of Trump's endorsement versus the establishment. You've got Madison Cawthorn, who obviously has been uh, pretty uh, embattled at this point with a lot of blackmail coming out against him, and the establishment tried to take him down in his primary as well. You have Idaho, another Trump pick versus an incumbent establishment figure. But the big one, of course, ooh, this is turning into basically political blood sports. I love it. Pennsylvania. A few weeks ago, you could not have convinced me that Pennsylvania would become the bloodiest bare knuckle brawl in the 2022 primaries. But apparently it is both the governor and the senator's race. Very exciting stuff. We will cover that in further detail after those results are clear to us on Tuesday. So be prepared for that. So for the main topic here, I wanted to address something that, that I saw a little while ago. I was writing one of my news articles for American Greatness, amgreatness.com, and I came across this one article that, uh, when I read the headline, uh, got me thinking a little bit because uh, this, it seems like one of those really self-confident headlines in support of the left, of course. It's from Axios, and Axios is another one. I would love to get Jacob's opinion on this. Maybe I can briefly mention this when he's back. Axios seems to me like one of those outlets, kind of like Politico, what Jacob has said about Politico, when somewhat saner liberals slash not-so-crazy leftists want to ring a kind of subtle alarm bell for the left that things are about to get really bad, they go to Politico. I could see Axios be very much being the same way. Axios, for one, they break a lot of scoops, which you know is, is fairly useful. They did break the first scoop that Trump was getting ready to endorse J.D. Vance, among other things. But they also kind of try to act like a strategy firm. They try to come up with like a game plan for how the left can fight back, you know, against these impossible odds, whatever, trying to make the left seem like the underdogs. And that's exactly what they do here. And what I, one thing, one more thing I like about Axios too, their articles are usually delightfully short. They're usually, they're not too crazy. They're not, you know, 50 pages long, like the Daily Mail or something. They're usually, you know, maybe just a couple of pages at maximum, maybe a page and a half. This one is a little longer than usual. And that's because it was written by three authors, Alexi McCammon, Elena Treen and Andrew Solander. Insert obligatory joke about how many journalists does it take to screw in a light bulb here. <laughs> See, apparently you need three journalists to write this article. Headline, quote, Dems punch back against GOP's culture war attacks. Ooh, it sounds like the left is finally figuring out a strategy that's going to win, guys. Are they finally going to somehow debunk the culture war attacks that have been very, very potent from the right that caused Virginia to swing by 12 points last year? Are they going to somehow fight back and come back from behind and win this impossible victory with all of the weight of the culture war finally catching up to them? Axios sure seems to think so, but once you actually read past the headline, which you should do, don't ever just take headlines for at face value, it really is apparent how lazy this is. So I'm just going to kind of skim through this and get to the, the really key passages here. So, <clears throat> quote, Democrats are starting to fight back against the bludgeoning they've taken since the Republicans seized on socially charged issues to help with win this fall's midterms. Recent research has shown the barrage of culture war messaging on everything from critical race theory to bashing LGBTQ communities is working, and Democrats now realize they can't ignore it any longer. It might be a little bit of too much too late at this point if they're just now realizing these culture war attacks are working. Quote, they want to make 2022 a referendum on MAGA nation and its agenda. Yeah, how'd that work out for you in 2016? You know, how's that worked out for you in general, trying to deflect from your issues and crises by just saying, oh, Trump's bad, Trump's bad. You guys basically tried to tie Glenn Youngkin to the Charlottesville protests when he was running for governor, and that failed miserably. So again, how'd that work out for you? Trying to make it a referendum never works. 
Joe Biden himself got more aggressive while traveling to Ohio last Wednesday to honor 2022's Teacher of the Year. And this is right here is just one example of, oh goodness, how these journalists can't do basic journalism. As Jacob's always said, he wasn't in Ohio, you morons. He was at the White House. There's video and photos of this. He was at the White House that day for this Teacher of the Year award, not Ohio. So I don't know where they got that one from. That was just embarrassing. These people, these so-called journalists don't even know how to journalism. At the event in question, at the White House, you're welcome for the correction, Axios, he said, quote, Today, there are too many politicians trying to score political points, trying to ban books, even math books. I mean, did you ever think that when you'd be teaching, you'd be worrying about book burnings and banning books? Where is anyone burning books, Joe? Please cite your evidence for that one. But of course you can't because you don't know what you're talking about, you senile old man. All because it doesn't fit somebody's political agenda. We ought to stop making them a target of the culture wars. So, uh, of course, I had to add for a little extra context, too, that they cite this as like his, you know, strong rebuke of the culture war messaging. But I love that they have to leave out this key passage that was the widely reported part of this event from Biden at the White House. He said this and was properly roasted for it all over social media. You've heard me say it many times about our children, but it's true. They're all our children. And the, the reason you're the teachers of the year is because you recognize that. They're not somebody else's children. They're like yours when they're in the classroom. They are your children when they're in the classroom. The fact that he said that as blatantly as he did, and he seems a little more coherent here than he usually does. He, I think he was well aware of what he was saying. He took some time to get that one out there. Props to whoever's alarm went off in the background there, by the way. I'm pretty sure that was one of his, his aides uh, with the alarm going off, letting us know, oh, this event's running on too long, guys. We got to get him back to his uh, bedroom for the sleep medicine quick. We got we to gotta inject him so he seems more awake than he actually is. It's just, I just can't even with the professionalism, the lack thereof of this White House. But they leave that part out. On another quick tangent, though, on that same note, I just have to cite this. Of course, the fact checkers rushed to try to denounce that. That particular video clip was from the Twitter account RNC Research, which, of course, is the opposite of research by the Republican National Committee. They rushed to declare this to be false, that Biden's statement there is false. They called it a distortion of what he actually said. Long story short is that they what they did here is at PolitiFact, is they claimed this is a misrepresentation because they left out the word like. So in his quote there, he said, they're not somebody else's children. They're like yours when they're in the classroom. Let me play that clip one more time again, just so you can hear what the clip says. Many times about our children, but it's true. They're all our children. And the, the reason you're the teachers of the year is because you recognize that. They're not somebody else's children. They're like yours when they're in the classroom. Oh, so you hear that? Oh, you hear that? He did include the word like. They did include the word the word like in that clip. Oh, so so what happened there, PolitiFact? Did you did you guys just like have momentary hearing loss or something there? They're like, oh no, they left out the word like. They left out the word like, bro. This is false. They rated this as completely false, by the way. They have that stupid meter that like uh, it has varying degrees of uh, true, partially true, partially false. They declare this outright false because they left out the word like. Except they clearly didn't leave out the word like these factors. I swear it's it's unreal. These people are a joke who absolutely deserve to be thrown out of decent society. Uh, but back to the article here. So to circle back to the original article, um, following this citing of this passage from Biden, they then go to the next person who they think is representative of the Democrats and the left punching back on the culture war. They go to 
the president of the American Federation of Teachers, Randy Weingarten, who said, quote, We're saying we are grateful. Your work matters and you need support to help our kids recover, not attacks from political extremists who make your job harder, end quote. So Randy Weingarten is the person you go to for this. Really, because, I mean, Randy Weingarten's support has worked out so well for the left in recent years. Yeah, right. Ask ask Governor uh, Terry McAuliffe how that worked out, or rather, I should say, re-elected Governor Terry McAuliffe how that worked out for him. That his final campaign event before the election was a rally with Weingarten, and then he goes on to lose in a massive upset. I'm sure that had absolutely nothing to do with it whatsoever. So basically, up to this point in the article, the vibe I'm getting from this Axios piece advising this is how Democrats win the culture war is, at least from Biden's quote or from Weingarten's quote, is to double down on supporting teachers? Like, really? That's your excuse? Is like, in this clear war that the right has successfully created, this great messaging dichotomy they've created, it is either you support teachers or you support parents. Who do you think has more authority over children? Who do you think has more of a right to teach children anything about life in general? Teachers versus parents. In this war, basically, the Axios here is saying their brilliant idea from, again, three authors, not one, not two, three authors, is to say, just double down on supporting teachers. That'll work. That'll definitely work. Support the teachers' unions, the same teachers' unions that held your kids, host kids hostages for years and used COVID as an excuse to demand negotiations from local governments and state governments to give them more benefits that had nothing to do with COVID, like extra vacation days, extra sick time, maternity leave, et cetera, et cetera, things that had nothing to do with COVID. Yeah, support the teachers unions, support the teachers. That is how you win the culture war. Absolutely unreal. Continuing the article, they then quote Rep. Pramila Jayapal, the one who famously her eyes nearly bugged out of her head like Arnold Schwarzenegger in, La in Total Recall during Jan the events of January 6th. Chair of the House Progressive Caucus, by the way. Quote, there's a lot of us that are extremely frustrated with Republicans for doing this, but also want our colleagues to be comfortable enough to stand up and defend our values rather than running to some other message or running away from it. I think that's starting to happen. Uh, okay, Ms. Jayapal, uh, what evidence is there uh, of any of this? That the left is starting to not run away from this message. What's your evidence? Name some examples. Oh, of course, she's a member of Congress. Of course, she's not going to cite any evidence. They never do that. Another member of Congress I cite is Alyssa Slotkin of Michigan, who says, quote, It is very clear that the other side is going to continue to sort of fearmonger as a way to drum up support. For some voters, that works, but I think pushing back works too. So your admission here basically is that it's their strategy is a winning strategy, or at the very least, it's going to convince some voters to their side. So you're already kind of conceding defeat at that point. But again, like with Jayapal, she doesn't cite any evidence. She doesn't cite any examples of how they can begin to fight back. This is all just broad speculation. There's no specific counterpunches here whatsoever. Axios is really stretching here to try to claim that any of this represents some coherent response from the left. But of course, towards the end here, Axios finally gets to the punchline. They finally get to one coherent example of some kind of a counterpunch, and that is putting it very, very lightly. They save the best for last, as it were, so get ready for this, guys. The proof they have that the left is making some kind of big cultural comeback is a one-term state senator in Michigan named Mallory McMorrow. So apparently on April 19th, so a month ago now, this article, by the way, was published on May 1st, so a couple of weeks after this speech was given. Great job, guys. On April 19th, McMorrow gave a speech from the floor of the state senate in response to another state senator named Lana Teese who correctly pointed out in a fundraising email that Democrats want to, quote, groom and sexualize kindergartners, 
fact check that is true, by the way. That, of course, is in reference to the Florida Parental Rights Law, which declared that, which banned the teaching of sexually explicit material in grades kindergarten through third grade. McMorrill's speech in response to this accusation went viral, they say. It garnered over one million views, which, I mean, okay, that's not nothing, but in the age of Joe Rogan or even someone like Ben Shapiro, that's not exactly viral. That's not a smash hit on your hands here. That's, that's, uh, there are literally thousands of YouTubers who get tens of millions of views per video. That is absolutely nothing. There are plenty of YouTube channels that get hundreds of millions of views per video. So the idea that a million is viral is just laughable. It's reflective of this boomer mindset from these three journalists that that is somehow viral. They're like, oh, we're going to talk like the kids talk because we know what it means to go viral, except they literally don't. And again, it took them almost three weeks to write an article about this three weeks after the speech supposedly went viral. Can you say astroturfing? That's definitely what it sounds like here. And once we get into this response, you will see just how fake and forced this all feels. So what did this marvelous revolutionary culture war speech by a little known state legislator actually say? Well, this is the best part. This is quality journalism from these three morons at Axios. Axios won't tell you. They don't include a transcript or even a link to the speech anywhere in this article. No excerpts, nothing. They don't give an example or any hint at what the speech itself said. But don't worry, these diligent journalists will claim, quote, every Democratic House member interviewed by Axios amid this reporting independently mentioned McMorrow and her backbone and the passion she displayed, end quote. Sure, guys, sure. If the last few years of fake news is any indication, there's often a lot, and I mean a ton, of coaching and guiding that goes on behind the scenes during these friendly interviews with Democrats that make some elements seem spontaneous or grassroots. That's what they do. That is at the core of the left strategy is to make things seem grassroots. Look at their protest marches from Occupy Wall Street up to the March for Our Lives and the Women's March and all these spontaneous pro-abortion protests at the Supreme Court. They are all astroturf. They are all faked, but they want to convince you that this happened naturally and organically. So take this claim that, you know, all these Democrats they interviewed, all two of them so far, two in the whole article, that they spontaneously and independently mentioned this speech by McMorrow. Take that claim with a grain of salt, which there is plenty of salt to go around these days, thanks to the leftists and the feminists. But the article insists these this speech has received widespread praise, they say. Rep. Haley Stevens, who's also from Michigan, by the way, so chalk this one up to more inside baseball. She's just rooting for someone you know, from her same state. She compared the speech to Obama's 2004 speech at the Democratic National Convention and called it, quote, the perfect call out to the attacks on what McMorrow dubbed marginalized people. Congressman Tim Ryan, who is now, of course, the uh, Democratic nominee for the U.S. Senate in Ohio, said, quote, I think you absolutely need to have that kind of tone, that kind of attitude on these issues. These guys are punching down. I think you've got to hit back. You've got to hit back hard. Again, that, that's very generic and doesn't even reference her by name. So he could very well have been talking about just something else in general. And they just decided to report that he was talking about McMorrow. And the third and final example they give, by the way, here that Axios gives of someone praising McMorrow's speech independently and grassroots is McMorrow herself on MSNBC, no less. Good job, guys. So now let's get to the actual meat in the matter here. Let's take a look at what she actually said, because again, Axios won't tell you what she said. 
The speech itself was five minutes long. Here is the key passage that uh, when I had to do some digging on my own, that local outlets in Michigan, as well as her Wikipedia page, this is the key passage that they cite. Quote, I am the biggest threat to your hollow, hateful scheme. Because you can't claim that you are targeting marginalized kids in the name of parental rights if another parent is standing up to say no. Hang on here. So, so, so her logic here is that I am a parent and I support grooming kids. Therefore, you can't say you're speaking for parents when you say you oppose grooming children. I'm not sure that's how elections work, sweetheart. Just because you are a parent does not give you immunity to say whatever you want and to claim that you speak on behalf of all parents. Clearly, the majority of parents don't agree with you as seen in Virginia and as seen in the polls up to this day, and we will most likely see in November this year. Any more than, you know, a survivor of 9-11 gets to claim they are an expert on everything that happened that day to the point that they claim, oh, I know 9-11 is an inside job because I was a survivor that day. Like, no, your experience was tragic, but that does not give you the right to claim you're an expert enough to know that 9-11 was an inside job. And it's the same thing here to say like, oh, I'm a parent, therefore I have the right to, I mean, you have the right, of course, but you definitely do not have the right to speak on behalf of all parents. Again, let the majority of parents speak like you saw at all those grass, those real grassroots protests at school board meetings all across the country, which your government, your Democratic administration tried to label as domestic terrorists, by the way. Nice job there with that little bit of perjury there, by the way, Attorney General Garland. Back to her speech. She says, quote, you say she's a groomer. She supports pedophilia. She wants children to believe that they were responsible for slavery and to feel bad about themselves because they're white. Uh, so right here, she kind of tries to tie transgenderism into critical race theory. So kind of lumping them all together for a broader culture war broadside she's going for. She says, quote, I am a straight, white, Christian, married, suburban mom who knows that the very notion that learning about slavery or redlining or systemic racism somehow means that children are being taught to feel bad or hate themselves because they are white is absolute nonsense. So just like that, just a hard left turn out of nowhere. She dumps transgenderism and is now focusing purely on critical race theory. Uh, again, the accusation was against you supporting grooming and pedophilia by virtue of your party being pretty unilaterally opposed to the Florida parental rights law. But, and on that note real quick too, I would ask, I would love to know what her stance is on that law. I couldn't find anything about her specific stance on that law, but I'm willing to wager a wild guess that she like her party because I'm yet, I'm yet to hear about a single Democrat who, who supports that law. They are overwhelmingly against it because the national party says so. That's the national talking point from the Biden white house and elsewhere. So if she were to come out tomorrow and say, hey, I support the Florida parental rights law, then yes, I would be willing to give you credit and say, as a moderate Democrat, you took a stance against grooming because you supported that law. But do you support that law? Probably not. Chances are she opposes that law like the rest of her party. So yes, by definition, if you oppose a law that bans sexually explicit material for kindergartners through third grade, then yes, by definition, you are a groomer, and that's the fact. But she's trying to deflect here by shifting it to critical race theory, which is not, again, that's not part of the original accusation. The original accusation had to do with grooming and, and transgenderism and the agenda trying to you know basically legalize pedophilia. She completely shifts, though, over to critical race theory. And back onto the same topic. This is where it gets even better. Quote, No child alive today is responsible for slavery. No one in this room is responsible for slavery. But each and every single one of us bears responsibility for writing the next chapter of history. We are not responsible for the past. We also cannot change the past. We can't pretend that it didn't happen or deny people their very right to exist. So there's a lot to unpack here. So first off, again, 
the complete pivot from the current issue to another issue. She's basically trying to turn the clock back to 2021. In 2021, critical race theory was at the front and center. It was primarily critical race theory that drove Youngkin's victory. The transgenderism stuff, again, the Loudoun County double rape case with a, a tranny perpetrator, that was part of it, but critical race theory was the main thing. And it still is a big thing, but 2022 now, it's kind of shifted more to transgenderism, more to, you know, the, the Will Thomases of the world, the, the Richard Levines of the world. And that is now even more pressing because it's it's more disturbing. I, I have I've had this debate with some of my friends recently over what's more disturbing, what's more evil, what's more insidious: transgenderism or black nationalism. I would argue, of course, black nationalism is the larger looming threat because they have the greater numbers, and they, of course, single-handedly burned down half the country in 2020 with the race riots. Trans transgenderism wasn't at, it's not as violent. It's not as widespread in its violence. In the cases where it's happening, it is more evil. It's more disgusting what they are doing. You know, mutilating a child versus burning down a business. It's really talking about picking your poison pills, right? But I would argue that the greater threat overall is still black nationalism, but transgenderism is more representative of how far we have fallen as a society, just how quickly and how far we have fallen. But the bottom line being, she's trying to shift the clock back to 2021 rather than address the more pressing issue that we are facing in 2022. That is definitely the talk of the town more, the banning trainees from competing in sports. That's happening more widespread now than it was in 2021. Kind of like how in 2021, Bill's banning critical race theory were happening all over the country more than they are happening now in 2022. So basically what you're getting out of this is that a year later, this woman thinks she has finally found the solution to critical race theory. After the critical race theory was already used to flip Virginia and to almost flip New Jersey. So great job there, you know, Miss McMorrow, you know, a year late to the game. Your party thanks you for it. But the, another important thing to talk about here is what she says here is a fundamental rejection of critical race theory. She's, she's not owning the cause. She's not owning the right on critical race theory here. She's denouncing critical race theory by saying no child alive today is responsible for slavery. No one in this room is responsible for slavery. We are not responsible for the past. That is factually true, of course. That is morally and ethically true. No one alive today is responsible for slavery. But that's not what critical race theory says. Critical race theory says white people today are automatically racist, that America is an inherently racist country, and white people today are perpetuating racism by perpetuating systematic racism and exclusion of black people in the workplace still to this day, blah, 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 blah. They do believe all people today are responsible. You know, we as the descendants of the, the white founding fathers are responsible for slavery. That's the argument for reparations. That is the crux of critical race theory. I guarantee you, if she were to try to make this point to Black Lives Matter, if she were to try to go up to Hawk Newsom or Patrice Cullors and make this point, they would laugh in her face and basically tell her, oh, get out of here, white woman. Don't you try to white-splain our ideas. Don't try to whitewash our ideas. Who do you think you are to speak for Black Lives Matter? Who, do you, who are you to speak for black voters? That exactly is what they would say. They would tell her this is a distortion of their idea, that, that, she's, that this is an example that she is a white supremacist. They would call her a white supremacist for saying this stuff, for basically disavowing critical race theory. And this, again, is representative of the beautiful corner they have been utterly and hopelessly backed into on a critical race theory. You saw this in the aftermath of Virginia. They didn't know how to respond to these attacks. And when Youngkin won as a result, they lost their collective minds. You saw some, again, Nicole Wallace on MS, MS, MSNBC took the approach that, oh, critical race theory isn't real. It's a conspiracy theory invented by the Republicans to win elections, and it's working, versus someone like Hawk Newsom, again, who— 
it keeps getting invited back to Fox News for some reason. This is one host. I don't know her name, but she always has Hawk News on Fox News for some reason for like ideological diversity or some nonsense like that. In the aftermath of the Virginia election, he was on Fox News again during their day show wearing a T-shirt that said critical race theory is American history. So clearly some people on the left are going to run away with, oh, it's, it's not real. Don't worry. We don't support it. It's not even real versus some who will say, no, it is real dog. And this is our history. We need to teach this history. This is American history. Critical race theory is real. They can't agree on a unified message to it. And it's the same thing with transgenderism. There, of course, are some. The sensible approach would be to say, oh, of course, we don't support mutilating children. We don't support indoctrinating them with sexual and gender identity when they're three years old. But then there are others who would say, you can't say that that's transphobic. You're, you're a misogynist. You're, you're a racist. You're a xenophobe. They, of course, use an excuse to throw in all the ists and phobes in there. But they'll say you're transphobic if you don't support uh, mutilating kids who are prepubescent. So it's absolutely glorious. They, they've built this minority hierarchy on their left as their coalition. It's a coalition of, minor, of minorities all coming to see who is the most oppressed. They have built this massive pyramid of, of certain minorities are more oppressed than others. You know, black women are more oppressed than black men. And in their effort to climb higher and higher up this totem pole of oppression, they inevitably are going to lose their grip and fall from said totem pole and break both of their legs. And it is so delicious. They cannot run away from the monster they created, this multicultural, ultra-minority coalition that they thought could they could win on. They thought if they built up a coalition of as many minorities as possible, united against the evil white man, then eventually demographics and immigration would do its job for them and ultimately secure a supermajority for the next hundred years by just eventually outnumbering white people. But they got ahead of themselves. They put the cart before the horse. And now, while white voters still are an overwhelming majority of this country, and not only that, but they kicked it so much into overdrive with this leftist insanity, they're turning their own voters against them. Again, suburban voters, you know, the those who didn't like Trump's mean tweets may say, oh yeah, I didn't like Donald Trump, but I also don't support mutilating kids. What is this? This insanity. Uh, Bill Maher, who keeps calling this stuff out on a regular basis, has says it well. You know, I haven't gotten more conservative. The left has gotten goofier, which is fact check, definitely true. So the fact that they ultimately, that Axios, again, they think they're so clever. These three journalists who had to work together to screw in one light bulb writing this article that's slightly longer than usual, they think they have found the answer in this woman, in this speech, that basically disavows critical race theory. Their argument, basically, they of course don't make this argument for, as their conclusion, but what you could draw from it is, oh, clearly based on this woman's speech, we should disavow the tenets of critical race theory, and that's the way to win, which, spoiler alert, I'll give you guys a little advice, Axios, you're welcome, and the left in general and Democrats. Yes, if you came out tomorrow and said critical race theory is garbage, it's racist against white people, we don't support it, guess what? You would win back a lot of that support. I'm doing the Joe Biden thing. I'm whispering into the mic. You would win back your support. Those working class voters, those white working class blue collar voters in the Midwest that were once not only the backbone of this country, but the backbone of your coalition, the unions and what have you, they would support you again because you're not counter-signaling white people existing every second. But of course, you've gotten in too deep with the Black Lives Matter coalition. You've got Kamala Harris as your vice president. Biden was ultimately installed into the presidency by the endorsement of Jim Clyburn in South Carolina. You would not be here if it weren't for the black voters and the, the Black Lives Matter coalition, and they know that, and they're not going to let you run away from this. So this really doesn't solve anything, but I had to, when I saw this article and I read through it and I read through it again, I'm like, I can't believe this. Everything about this article, the garbage journalism from, again, they don't even quote this magical speech that supposedly is the answer to everything, to reading the speech itself, and that is why. 
That's why they don't mention the speech here, because they know the speech itself doesn't really solve their problems. It more just involves a reversal. It more involves just turning around and changing their minds. Like you saw that with Biden in his State of the Union. He basically did a complete 180 on defund the police after on the campaign trail supporting defund the police, as did all the other candidates. He suddenly came out in his State of the Union and said, no, the answer is not to defund the police. It's to fund them, fund them, fund them. And of course, you saw the backlash from the Black Lives Matter wing that was like, oh man, this racist white man, he's basically a Republican. He ain't for us. And it was delicious to see. So is this an indication the left is going to finally turn on critical race theory, which would be the smart move? I don't think so at all. I think that this is just a desperate stretch by Axios to try to make themselves relevant, to try to act like some kind of strategy wing of the Democratic Party to say, hey, guys, we can help you win the election. And then you try to hand this article. Try to hand this article to Kamala Harris. Forget Biden because he's a, he's completely incoherent. But try to give this to Kamala Harris. And the summary is basically, yeah, disavow critical race theory. Of course, Kamala Harris is going to do that, you know, wide mouth buck tooth laugh in your face, that horse laugh in your face. And she's going to toss the article on the ground and say, you know, this this is garbage. This is garbage. And you need to get out of my sight. <laughs> So this, this is definitely one of the funniest articles I've seen in a while. I love every now and then seeing an article that is so bad, I just have to rip into it. And this article is no exception. I had to absolutely tear it apart. Because again, I generally like Axios and like that. That's a very, I'm using that word very gently here. Uh, it's part of the mainstream press. It's generally garbage. But every now and then, I like some of the stuff they put out. But this was just absolutely laughable. And again, the three of you, Alexi and Elena and Andrew, you guys should be absolutely embarrassed. This is laughable. I can only imagine that some of you probably graduated with degrees in journalism from whichever you know elite universities you went to. Good job. You managed to screw in a light bulb, but you screwed it in backwards and it still doesn't turn on when you flick the switch. N nice try, guys. Nice try. I'll give you a C plus for effort. And that is all the time I have left for this episode of The Right Take. Thank you guys so much for tuning in, as always. Again, Jacob will be back next week. We'll be recapping the events of the primary elections in Pennsylvania and other states across the country, North Carolina and Idaho, on Tuesday. We will talk, most likely talk a little bit more about what we have learned in the week since then about this mass shooting in Buffalo and its implications, if any, for the midterm elections. We will have more content for you guys and possibly more interviews for you guys in the future. We loved doing that interview with Congressman, uh, congressional candidate Jim Shoemaker last week to talk about his campaign, his platform, which includes pro-life off the back of the amazing and historic news of the Roe v. Wade decision soon to be overturned. So stay tuned for all of that and more. Be sure to follow us for all of our latest content at our website, righttakepodcast.com. The full list of podcast platforms and websites where we are available, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And as always, if ever you guys are feeling oh so generous and want to support the show and the work that we do here, righttakepodcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you next week, guys.